0: Welcome to Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities Podcast. We examine health disparities that disproportionately affect Black women and Black families. In addition, we amplify organizations and individuals working to dismantle racist health practices and systems to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore. A registered nurse and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host Camille
1: White you have to continue to fight for what's right even when you know you're when you're too loud that that's what I'm all about I don't mind being loud I don't mind being you know the unfavored person because ultimately it's about what's right on behalf of the patients
2: in this episode we interview Jasmine Samuel a black nurse Healthcare administrator, triple negative breast cancer survivor, and founder of the Patient Nurse Foundation, an organization that provides essential care management support and patient navigation services to Mississippians, a state with some of the worst health outcomes in the U.S.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Distrust and Disparities Podcast. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so we want to remind all our listeners to make sure that you're doing your monthly breast exams. If you're at the age where it's recommended that you get a mammogram, please go ahead and schedule that appointment now. Also, check in with the other women in your life to see if they are updated on their mammogram and breast screenings and other preventative care services. Let's start having these conversations now because prevention and education is a big factor. Thanks to improved therapies and early detection, breast cancer is becoming easily treatable. But despite these improvements, breast cancer is now the leading cause of cancer death among Black women, according to a new report by the American Cancer Society, Black women are now 41% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women, despite a lower risk of being diagnosed with the disease. And this is partly because black women are more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer at a later stage when it's harder to treat. But Black women have lower survival rates at every stage of breast cancer diagnosis. Many complex factors contribute to this gap in care outcomes, all of which are fueled by systemic racism that limits access to high-quality cancer treatment. This week, we have a special guest with us here to share her story of resilience and advocacy. On today's episode, we have Jasmine Dupree Samuel with us. Jasmine is a distinguished healthcare professional, a resilient, triple negative breast cancer survivor, and the visionary founder of the Patient Nurse Foundation. Born and raised in Jacksonville, Mississippi, she is committed to improving the health outcomes for patients navigating this treacherous healthcare landscape.
1: I am here to just let everyone know the importance of preventative screening and just management of chronic health conditions amongst our population and those in the underserved populations.
0: And we are excited to have you here today. So we do want to start with an icebreaker. We ask all our guests that come on the podcast we want to ask you about your first encounter with a medical injustice or health disparity. It could be something that you or someone close to you experienced or something that you've read about that really stuck with you.
1: One of the experiences actually is something very, very recent. Someone real close to me, my um, someone in my ministerial circle, the wife experiencing, you know, those when you first become symptomatic of anything, you kind of, we we as a culture will either downplay, we're busy, we're this, we're that. Um, but nonetheless, by the time we go in to get an examination, there's that approach of either why did you wait so late or either if you are well versed, it's almost like a, a how dare you type of approach. So this particular person went in and she is very well versed. This person is an attorney, so she's able to articulate on her own behalf. She goes in for a procedure, and you should be either sedated or under some type of pain control for this type of procedure. Well, that did not happen, and she's still in the early stages of trying to figure out exactly what is going on related to these symptoms. So she undergoes this particular test. And it turns out to be an excruciating, painful procedure for her when it should not have been. And for that reason, she's now scarred. We still don't know what's wrong. We still need to go even further, move somewhere outside of our state, unfortunately, to find more in-depth care. Well, by this time, we find the more in-depth care, and this same or similar test is recommended. Well, guess what? We're we're ultimately fearful at this point because this procedure, which should not have been so scarring, so painful, was for her. She received no pain control, nothing during the procedure, sent home with nothing. And so now, even though she still needs to find out what exactly is happening with me, it's more fear over wanting to know what's happening because naturally she doesn't want to be hurt again. And ultimately, this person turns out, finds out that this is a cancer that has been giving her all of these symptoms. But this happens over and over again here in our state, but also around the world. If you are not able to articulate for yourself or if you are able to articulate too well, we are often the victims of these medical injustices and you know there's no one to speak up for you and sometimes you don't know to speak up because you have that hope you have that trust that the medical professionals that you're seeking care from are going to have your best interest at heart and so often that's not the case
0: yeah you bring up uh, a lot in that story just We want to teach people how to advocate for yourselves. But then if you come in and they perceive you as a threat or that, you know, too much, it's like, are they taking this against me? Because like you said, the procedure, it shouldn't have been painful. You know, the proper amount of anesthesia should have been administered because it's supposed to be like a routine test. So it's like, why wasn't that done? And now you have this fear and, you know, it just can cause so many, like you said, The biggest thing is trust. And also this is a big part of like some delay in care and things like that. And pain is still a big issue and health disparities and just the discrepancies and how it's treated and managed. And just this perception still persists that black people don't feel pain the same way. It's sad that in 2023 we're still dealing with this issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that with our audience. So, we want to talk about your career a little bit because it's always inspiring and encouraging to speak with other nurses in the healthcare field. So, what inspired you to become a nurse and to enter the healthcare field?
1: I would say that that goes back to um, watching my mom take care of my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother had Alzheimer's disease. She and my grandfather lived independently for a large portion of my life. But ultimately, um, they wound up having to move into the home with myself, my brother, my mom and dad because their health was declining. And I watched my mom make some big sacrifices when taking care of my grandmother. My mom is a dedicated educator. She's still at it now. She's retired, but she is a consultant for many school districts, still out there beating the ground, doing the work, trying to make sure that our future is, is well taken care of. So she retired when, when she could. Um, she, I think, would have stayed longer in her profession, way, way longer, but it came down to what was most important to her at that time. And my grandmother's health was continuing to decline. So uh, she retired right around the age of she had at that point, she had already put in her 25 plus years in education, and her mom's health and her father's health was more important to her. And so I got that first time hands-on experience. And naturally, as a adolescent girl, you feel like all of your childhood is being snatched away. Well, you know, my friends are getting to go here, and they're getting to do these things, and I have to stay and help with grandma or watch grandma while you go and run an errand, but in the grand scheme of things, it all makes sense to me now. And so it was for that reason that I knew that I wanted to be in healthcare right at first, not necessarily a nurse, but um one of the big things that was like the catalyst for me was when it became too much for my mom. She tried to trust our healthcare system. And so we she put my grandmother in a nursing home um, just so that she was able to still try and grind it out. Well she was there less than a month before she was sexually assaulted by another patient. This patient whom should have been under constant watch at all times because he had a habit of like wandering into rooms. Again, Alzheimer's patients do things like that. Um, But he was found in my grandmother's room. There was a suspected assault, but the proper procedures were not followed. Um, We had some of the staff approach my mom and conveyed to her that they were instructed by the administrator of the facility to clean my grandmother up before the authorities were called. So you're talking about. that that's a major injustice, but it's the fact that had those people not had the courage to speak up, it would have just been another thing swept under the rug. And, you know, we went back and forth in court in the whole nine, but, you know, it became more important to just care for my grandmother. So naturally we brought her back home after that short stay and she lived out the rest of her days with us at home. And she lived for, A long time after that, but it's just the fact that you would have someone who is in a position of trust that you expect to have integrity. Um, They did not. And so for that reason, it's just another thing compounded where the trust is not there. And then many years down the line, something very similar happened to another family who was not a family of color and something was done about it. The administrator is then gone. So, you know, it, it just it happens over and over again. It's disheartening. But, you know, it. you can't just stand by and think that it's OK. Well, they didn't do anything for my family, so they won't do anything for the next. That's not the right approach. You have to continue to fight for what's right, even when, you know, you're when you're too loud. That that's what I'm all about. I don't mind being loud. I don't mind being, you know, the unfavored person because ultimately it's about what's right on behalf of the patients.
2: That's so important because, yeah, people can feel a way of like, well, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. I was taken advantage of a loved one was taken advantage of. So then, you know, sort of f everybody else. I'm gonna worry about me and my own and and call it a day where it is so important as a community coming together and fighting for one another, because oh, it's so terrible. That should have never happened. And then, like you said, luckily there were people who did come to you and your family and tell them, like, tell you all what was going on and what they tried to do. But clearly it was a facility that was more about their image and their reputation instead of doing a very simple job. And even if, like, okay, mistakes were made, it's about owning up to those mistakes and acknowledging what happened. And sometimes that means people get fired because you didn't do your job. Sometimes that means that, you know, there are repercussions in terms of payment in some way, even though that doesn't make up for what happened, but it's a small step. And then people can barely even make those small steps because they can be so selfish or just so terrible. But the fact that then you turn around in the same situation, something similar happens later on. And it's, it's a different complexion. It's, it's against a white person. All of a sudden it's like, oh, we're in an uproar. We got to handle this exactly. because if it happens to a white person, then people start to care, which mm-hmm. is just so unfortunate, but like, ugh.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, that particular situation drove me into healthcare administration because that's where I started. I tell everybody that I speak to, I did not think that I wanted to do hands-on patient care. But what you find with the healthcare administration degree is that most, more often than not, you're going to be asked to also have that clinical component as well to actually mm-hmm. assume those types of positions. So after many years of seeing that and that I was missing that piece, I went back to nursing school after having been a teacher for five years. So I've kind of done a little bit of everything but I'm starting to see the further that I get in life, all of the small pieces of the puzzle that did not make sense to me earlier. You know, why did grandma and granddad come stay with us? Well, why did I wind up with this degree and why? all of those things are, are coming together slowly? So my purpose is starting to be revealed. And I know that I'm meant to help others, others that can't others who want a little bit of extra help. Just anybody, you know. I am all for our people of color because more often than persons not of color, we are those that receive the injustices. So I'm working on behalf of that population. I'm not close to any other population, but my mission is to drive the importance of equalizing the playing field for everybody. that that's the issue. The playing field is not equal. in healthcare it's just not. No matter how painful it is for people in positions to hear, you need to hear it because it is the truth. It's the truth. And until we accept that as the truth, we're not going to get anywhere with resolving the issue.
0: Exactly. And like you said, get into the root of the issue. A lot of the roots of some of these healthcare disparities is just racism, like you said, if you look at the socioeconomic reasons of health disparities, it can go back to redlining, access to health care. And all of it is rooted in racism. And a lot of times people don't want to talk about it. They're like, why are you making this a black or white thing? But at the root of it, it is racism of racism. Um, most of these issues. And it's just so frustrating because it's like improving the health care, the health outcomes for marginalized communities will improve the health care outcomes for everyone. So it's just like we need to focus on those things. And it's just very, very frustrating. So and I also wanted to point out how you're saying looking back at like your teaching career and healthcare and like how you can use those skills to help others because at the basis of healthcare, education is really needed. Just being able to take your time with patients is really, really needed. And we have one more question about just like your experience and what was one of the hardest situations you had to deal with as a healthcare professional in your career and as already talked about your grandma, I can't imagine like anything else. That's like that situation alone. It's like, wow.
1: Well, I will say that what stands at the forefront of my mind, um, I live in the capital of Mississippi. I actually stay in a small town on the outskirts. But as a dialysis facility administrator, um, dialysis, the heart of dialysis, it, this is our saying, is water. Um, Without water, dialysis cannot happen. And um, similar to the situation in Flint, Michigan, the water system in Jackson, Mississippi is deplorable. We have water right up the road from my house that has been bubbling up out of the street for about three weeks. And the only thing that has been done is the big orange cone placed on top of it. We don't know if the street will fall in, what will happen. But water is an issue. So there was a winter. It was exceptionally cold this winter, and we're not used to that in Mississippi. And that has a detrimental effect on the pipes in this city. Every time it gets really cold, you start having these water main breaks. Ultimately, the clinic that I was administrator of is in South Jackson, really overly populated with people of color. Most of my patients were African-American. I did have some Caucasian and other patients, but the majority of the patient census were African-Americans. Well, the water lines around my clinic started to burst one by one by one. So, of course, with emergency management and facilities like that, you're going to have a backup facility. So I had the Southwest Clinic, and then there's one called the South Clinic. Well, when my water system went down, that meant that myself and my secretary at the drop of a dime had to formulate a plan to basically facilitate these people over to our sister clinic. That meant staying late. We had to rearrange transportation because the majority of your patients that come to dialysis are not driving themselves. Their families are bringing them or they're coming by way of Medicaid transportation, something like that. So. The clinic that we went to, mind you, they are also a functioning facility, but they were at the time a three day a week clinic. They only were open on um, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Most dialysis is three days a week. My clinic was a six day a week clinic. So what we had to do was devise a plan on the days that that facility was closed to get our patients there and get them dialyzed because a patient cannot go without their dialysis. Um, this clinic is up on a huge hill, mind you. I said it is exceptionally cold, so now we're dealing with an icy hill and that whole nine. That went on for about a month, where we had to continue to figure out how to get these patients to this clinic, get them dialyzed, and you know, you run into different things like clotted accesses and all types of things. You know, my ride can't get me there today, so. There were days that we had to infiltrate that clinic when they were up and running and still get my patients taken care of. So, I mean, you talking about stressful, that was the most stressful thing that I have ever had to do as a healthcare professional. We made it work. We came out on top. Everyone got their treatments. No one wound up in the hospital, but all because of an aging, unmaintained water system that continues to be a problem today. It's just, it's amazing that something as simple as water. And I mean, we have the little town that I live in is attempting to buy the water pipes in our town from the city of Jackson so that improvements can be made. But it's it's become a political thing, the back and forth. They don't Mm want to sell the pipes. They want, it should not be politics when you're talking about lives.
2: It really shouldn't. That like that's like just the tail end, the perfect way to sum it up because it's water. Exactly. And it's like our water infrastructure in this country is trash and if you look at the areas that are specifically just falling apart, you're just like, Oh, I see who's really affected mm-hmm. because again, if it was a facility that, you know, had patients of a different complexion, I think, you know, those things would have already been figured out. Those things would have already been managed. It's like, okay, we got to dig up these pipes because we need to make sure that they're prepared to get as cold as possible, as hot as possible. It would all have been sort of handled in a much better way. And luckily, because of, you know, your leadership and the hard work that you put in with your team to make sure all your patients were taken care of, it's just though the fact that you were even put in that situation when it's just like, you then have to go above and beyond of making something work when it's just like, how about we just make sure that the system itself is functioning well Mm -hmm. and we don't have to go above and beyond, but it also brings into it like just environmental things that negatively impact us that have ripple effects that a lot of people maybe don't see or don't think about where we all like, if we live in areas where water just isn't really on our mind, you take it for granted, but
1: We need it. We do. It's so important. We do. We need the water. And at the time, I'm a brand new administrator. So, you know, this was exceptionally scary for me to even try to tackle. But I knew that not tackling it was not an option. So we had to get it figured out. And if you go just a few miles up the road out to our neighboring city of Madison, Mississippi, everything is beautiful. The water system is is great there. But you come a few miles in and you the to see the difference is absolutely amazing. And it's it's disheartening. It is so disheartening. My dad was born and raised here. And um, I don't remember which one of you said at the beginning, I actually was not born um, in Jacksonville, Mississippi. I was born in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, my, but my dad was born and raised here in Jackson, Mississippi. And just to hear him relive and recount how the city used to be so beautiful and certain parts of it are, are just dilapidated now. And you can you can see what is taking place. It We're going to let it fall apart. We're going to likely come in and buy it all up, beautify it mm-hmm. and make it so expensive that. Those of us who reside here, you're not going to be able to afford to be here anymore. And then you'll have to go away. But right now, while we're having these effects on our population and we're seeing these chronic diseases kill people when it does not have to be, it comes down to things that are so simple. Like you said, education. If we would just take the time to educate, you would be amazed at the difference that you see. Have
2: you checked out our website? There you can find all of our episodes and show notes. You can even listen directly on the site and catch up on any previous episode you may have missed. You can read our bios and see what we're up to. Also, we made it even easier to contact us. Just fill out the form on our homepage and click submit. We invite you to recommend guests and topics we should feature. So what are you waiting for? Go check us out at Disparities. .com So now Devin, we want to get into your breast cancer journey and just could you tell our listeners about your experience and sort of go down and break down like when you were diagnosed how old you were and what that has been like for you
1: Well I at the time of diagnosis I was um, turning 38 I went in for just my regular checkup with my OBGYN who happens to be a black female. um, But despite her race, she is a dedicated and thorough professional. So she's just not the in and out type of doctor. She's going to come in, she's going to talk and she's going to really, really check you out. So she's doing her regular, just palpitations feeling around. And she says, Hmm. I feel a little bit of something. Let me just send you to one of my partners to make sure it's nothing. That's the approach we took at first. Um, went to her counterpart, who was a Caucasian male. And before he came in to do the um, examination, I actually skipped the mammogram part because I did go get a mammogram after seeing her. And I kind of had a gut feeling when the um, the mammogram and ultrasound nurse She took the first images and then she went out to check with the radiologist to make sure the images were okay. And then she came back in. And I think just out of profession and trying not to scare me as the patient, she said, I don't want you to be afraid. The radiologist just wants me to get a few more pictures. Something in my gut kind of told me something was off. So she did the other images and then we also did an ultrasound and it landed me over at the surgical oncologist's office, who is a Caucasian male. And the first thing that he said when he came in, he said, well, at your age. Things like this are usually nothing. Um, It's normally going to be an adenoma. And typically when I put the biopsy needle in, if it's an adenoma, it'll collapse. Well, when he got in and started doing his thing, I noticed he never said that it collapsed. He never really said anything else. So I was that much more suspicious at that point. And that exam happened on a Thursday. My birthday, my 30, 38th birthday was that Friday. And when he left, he said, well, you know, it's, it'll probably take through the weekend into next week before we get the results back. And, you know, that's typical for a biopsy of anything, to be honest with you. So I'm sitting on that Saturday just chatting with my husband and I get an alert to my email. You you have a new test result. And I'm thinking, well, that's odd to come back on a Saturday. I opened it, which was to my detriment, but I'm nosy. Um, And being a nurse, my eyes zoomed right into the term. All I saw was carcinoma. I knew it then that it was cancer. And you can just imagine to have just turned 38 the day before, my heart just sank to my feet. And that doctor had given me his cell phone number. Um, I don't know if that's a typical practice, but he gave me his cell phone number. and said, you know, if you have any questions, shoot me a message, which I didn't. I had to get through my own emotions over the weekend. But that Monday morning, I just sent him a brief text and said, I see that our relationship will have to continue. And we set up those next appointments and then we went from there. But from that point, the waiting is the worst. And. I had some situations where his staff was very passive. Um, you try, I tr- I try to never pull it. I call it pull my nurse card. If I don't have to tell you that I'm a nurse, I, I don't because I trust that you are educated enough to do your job without me kind of micromanaging you. Um, but weeks passed and I never got another appointment. I'm thinking, well, I know it has to be some more stuff, but. I'm green to the cancer game. I've never been an oncology nurse or anything like that. So I can only trust that they're going to call me with what's next. Well, that didn't happen. And I had to call the office only to find out um, the next step should have been a PET scan. I think it was. And he had no clue that weeks had passed. And I hadn't gone to the next step. So I had to send him another text. He got with his nursing staff and then the excuses started coming. Oh, well, the girls at the desk, they're in nursing school and they're all over the place. I'm thinking, I don't want to hear any of that. None of that is is of my concern. At this point, I'm worried about me. So when I get the call back about the PET scan and the MRI, only to be told the machine is broken. We don't know when it'll be back up. I'm thinking, you're telling me in the capital city there's one MRI or PET scan machine? You've got to be joking. But whatever hospital they partner with, the machine was broken. And the estimated time frame for the part to be in was 30 days or greater. It was at that point that I made my decision. I'm going to MD Anderson for For the rest of my care, Um, as much of my care as I can get at MD Anderson, that's where I'm going, because all trust was lost at that point. Because if I'm having to step in and basically be the overseer of the scheduling of my appointments and what's next, I don't really trust that you know what you're doing. So ultimately, I wound up with the medical oncologist. I got my chemotherapy and everything here at home, but that just was that experience was even worse. But just the beginning from examination to diagnosis was enough of, I mean, it was, it was like a monster. And the whole experience, I had to become in charge of making it a positive experience for me. But then my heart goes out to someone who doesn't know how to turn it around for themselves. I have the ability, but I look around the waiting rooms in these places and I can land my eyes on and hear those people who don't have that same ability. But who am I to step in on their private time and, you know, their health care information? But you can hear from room to room. They're not really being given anywhere to turn. When you get cancer, you already don't know where to turn. You just you, you become lost in the diagnosis itself but you know you expect the healthcare team to kind of guide you and that is where we're broken. We're broken here and clearly we need some help fixing it. So I'm trying to be one of the pieces that helps fix it for those people who don't know what to do or where to go.
0: Yeah, that's very frustrating like so many obstacles and roadblocks just in your way. And like you said, if you don't have that healthcare background and mindset to know like something is supposed to be next, like what are the further steps, like even being able to look at your test results. And it's just very sad. And like you said, so many patients, they trust healthcare providers to have their best interests in mind. So that's very frustrating that nothing is being done and you're diagnosed with cancer and you're trying to navigate a system, you just blame it on, you know, the nursing students and this and that. But it's like your first job is, you know, you're to schedule patients and things like that. So it's just very frustrating and very disheartening. So I have a question. In your treatment, when you were getting treatment and in, in the diagnostic phase, when did they tell you that you were diagnosed with the triple negative breast cancer?
1: So the triple negative diagnosis comes from the, the, well, the breast cancer type comes from the surgical oncologist. Um, That's for me, that was the Caucasian male. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be honest with you, that too came in the form of a text message. (laughs) Um, I, I sometimes think backward and, I say to myself, maybe he took that type of approach because he knew he knew that I was a nurse. Um, And it was like once he knew that portion, his mindset was that, oh, well, she gets it. So I'll just kind of blow through here and pass a couple of pieces of paper, send out a couple of words. So I had to do my own research once I found out the type. Um, I, I don't know if I still have the message, but all it said was it's triple negative. Well, when you do your research on triple negative, you find out that triple negative breast cancer is the most aggressive form of breast cancer there is. Um, And the rate of it is so much higher in black women than it is in any other race. And there is no concrete research out there currently. That says what the direct causes of triple negative breast cancer are, but they do find that stress is one of those leading risk factors. And as Black women, stress tends to be a large part of our lives. We're, We're moms. We're sometimes single mothers raising lots of children, maybe other family members' children. We tend to have And carry a lot of responsibility. Um, And sometimes there's nothing that we can do about it. Mm. And I often wonder, did I do it to myself? Is what I sometimes question. Is there something that I could have done differently? But you know, you can't go backwards, the shoulda, coulda, woulda's, you can't change it. But that triple negative portion scared me to death. I instantly, my first thought after researching the diagnosis was, I'm going to die because you read how aggressive it is Mm -hmm. and then you find out the treatment plan for it and you get the most aggressive form of chemotherapy. You are going to lose your hair. You know, there's some chemotherapies. You don't lose your hair and they have all this fancy stuff out there now where you can cold cap, put this little I call it a helmet on your head, but it's like an ice block that you put (laughs) on top of your head that's supposed to help you keep your hair or not lose as much hair, but you pay for it out of pocket. It's a couple of thousand dollars, absolutely not worth it for me um, because it's just hair. But, you know, I do understand those women out there who get diagnosed with breast cancer and that's a huge part of it for them. Losing their hair sometimes is a bigger obstacle than the chemotherapy itself. For me, it was not. But Finding out that I had triple negative, I thought it would be a detrimental thing. But ultimately, in the long run, it turned out to be fine. But it was mind over matter. Once I changed my mindset Mm -hmm. of I'm going to die, my mindset changed from that to you can either have cancer or you can let cancer have you. So I chose Mm -hmm. to, to have cancer, put on my big girl boots and, you know, face it head on. I'm on, I'm going into chemotherapy. I know I'm going to lose my hair. I know there will be days where I'm going to be too sick to do anything. But in the end, I'm going to come out victorious. And that's really the approach that one has to take. If you want to come out victorious or successful in the end, you just have to know that it's just a thing. It's just a thing that you can't let matter more than your own life.
2: Yeah, the mental part of it is. Is huge and so important because having that positivity that really will provide you with strength and will help with the fact that, you know, stress is a huge factor that can help then lessen some of the stress that you might feel and you're going into it going like it's a battle, but like it's a battle that can be
1: won. Absolutely.
0: And more research is being done looking at Black women and breast cancer and just how to go about treating um, breast cancer in Black women. I think the guidelines now is that you get your first mammogram at 40, but we're seeing that with triple negative breast cancer, more Black women are being diagnosed at a younger age and it's a more aggressive type of cancer. So The guidelines may need to change. There needs to be more research and more push for how to diagnose it early so that we can have those treatment measures in place so that we can improve the health outcomes of this type of cancer. And how you brought up just arming yourself with education and advocating for yourself um, to get other treatment options which I'm so glad to have you on the show to talk about your experience because so many times we look at healthcare providers like they have our best interests in mind but a lot of times there's not this urgency and things like that they miss certain things so just being able to know the facts and know what you need to do can really make a difference and you know your life or someone else else's life you can share this information we also wanted to ask, how was it juggling your breast cancer treatment with um, your family?
1: It really became a, <laughs> we, we had to devise a plan from the beginning. Um, I, I am a self-proclaimed, um, I have some self-proclaimed OCD type behaviors myself. And so once I talked with the social worker about how to break the news to my kids the right way without scaring them. And once we got past that portion of it and the kids really understood the seriousness of what we were dealing with and the importance of, you know, infection control down to you leave your school items outside the door. You know, you have to disrobe in the laundry room. Don't come into mommy's space until you've had, a shower and you're all clean and you know we wore masks but trying to juggle because I'm used to doing a lot my husband is wonderful but I am used to doing things a certain way we have a certain schedule that we keep we do things in a certain order so not feeling up to and not being able to carry out my normal duties and expectations it was an adjustment for us all my husband jumped right in and filled in the gaps, but you know for for small children, it's it's a little bit strange. When you're used to mom doing things a certain way or mom coming back and getting you up in the morning and things like that, it was definitely it it took some getting used to. And we're just now over a year later getting back to what was our normal. But they still have those behaviors basically ingrained within them. They still come in and they still get showers and anything like that before they ever come near me because they knew they did not want to bring mommy a germ or anything that would put my health at risk. So I'd say to any mother out there who is having to deal with the thought of juggling family and breast cancer, it can be done. Even if you have to sit there, it may sound silly, but even if you have to sit down and just jot out a plan and if plan A doesn't work figure out those things within plan A that did not work it may be that the whole plan didn't work it may just be that pieces of it didn't work and you keep revising that plan until you find something that works for you and your family unit and you know everyone does not have a support system so sometimes you have to find out how to be your own support and a lot of times that means making your kids, making sure that your children, if you have children or those close to you, making sure that they fully understand how you feel. Don't try to hide when you're not feeling well. Um, don't try to hide when you need help, because those are the things that make a difference in your recovery. It's pulling in all of those pieces together. And that is what helps you start to get on the mend. But the more that you try to, you know, become a recluse or do it all yourself or hold it all in, it really, really changes the trajectory of how things are going, even down to how effective your chemotherapy is.
0: Being able to rely on your family and having those support systems in place can really, like you said, make a difference on your your treatment. And also, can you talk to us about your experience at the um, treatment center?
1: My experience at my treatment center—lots um, of the nurses were wonderful. However, the facility itself, when we talk about the—I call it like the physical plant—that's what we called it when I was in healthcare management. So you're talking about down to the chairs in your lobby, and you know how clean your floor is, and just the overall appearance of the facility itself. And this particular, my particular clinic, um, is, is within, um, like a wing of a hospital. So, you know, it's its own separate entity. So the, at first glance, everything looks well. Um, however, the more you go, because, you know, with chemotherapy, they become like your family. You're there every week, a lot of times, sometimes multiple times a week, depending on what you have going on, um. It, it's something that I giggle about now, but it, it, is, it was so frustrating to see it when I was there. There was a piece of candy corn, yes, the kind that you eat, underneath the chair in the lobby. I noticed it there one day. No big deal. We, we come to chemo. We come with bags of snacks and things just to try to make it through the treatment. And at first glance, I'm thinking, oh, well, somebody dropped something under the chair. But when I came back the next week, that same piece of candy corn was underneath the chair. And the week after that, that same candy corn was underneath that same chair. That piece of candy corn stayed underneath that chair for months. Um, and it spoke that small piece of candy corn spoke so loudly to me about the pride that the organization took in itself. And it made me wonder if that same piece of candy corn can sit under a chair for months unnoticed and everybody just goes along with their daily responsibilities. Now, somebody else may say, oh, it's just a piece of candy corn. But as a patient dealing with cancer, if you can't pay attention to a piece of candy corn under a chair, I wonder how well Are you paying attention to me and my symptoms or are you just blowing past me and just hanging that bag of chemo? You start to feel like you're in a like a rat race. Almost. It's come in, hang the drug. I'll be back. You don't they don't peep in on you unless you press the button. So the facility itself, when I compare my chemotherapy center here at home in Mississippi to. MD Anderson and its facilities in Houston, because I did receive one treatment there. It is like night and day. I mean, when you talk about we we often sometimes hear like the Chick-fil-A experience. MD Anderson is like the Chick-fil-A of of cancer centers. And when you talk about my cancer center here at home, I'm thankful to have made it out is basically what I can say because my experience as a whole there from dealing with the doctor and her passiveness to not only my pain to um, the nurses. Also doctors don't realize a lot of times how you treat a patient, your staff watches you. It's the same way children watch Mm -hmm. their parents and develop those same types of behaviors, Mm -hmm. whether they know it or not. So If a nursing staff watches a doctor be passive with patients, you can bet your bottom dollar that at least one of that nursing staff will become that very same person. And they know they're going to be okay because they watch the doctor do it all the time. And it is so frustrating. And so, you know, there were situations where I would have to point out, you know, no, I want you to clean that chair before I sit in it. Number one, it's supposed to be done between patients anyway, just as a general infection control practice. However, those are things that you don't expect to have to deal with when you go for chemotherapy. You expect that these people are professionally trained enough to know those basic steps that have to take place to keep your patient safe. And if you can't pick up a piece of candy corn, and I know that's typically something in the lobby that's handled by a janitorial service, But it's just the mere fact that you could almost see, you know, when you vacuum at home, if you're vacuuming underneath a chair and you don't really bend down to look underneath it to make sure you don't need to move the chair to get all the way to make sure that you have effectively done the job. It really made me have that kind of side eye type of approach. I'm thinking the candy corn lives here and I mean literally on my last day going to the clinic I took a picture of that piece of candy corn and I told it goodbye and I didn't want to see it anymore because it was still there I even told the staff at the desk when I checked out I said make sure I'm making sure that I tell the candy corn goodbye and they all had a strange look and I just said yeah that same piece of candy corn has been under that same chair for months and all you know you get the bulgy eyed look like well, I shouldn't have even had to bring that to anyone's attention, but I did. And like I said, I get a giggle out of it now, but it's it's just, it's sad. It really is. And I want, for my state, I want us to do better. We can do so much better than we're doing. And we just, from what I see, we just choose not to.
0: And it's about challenging, like, the status quo so many people are just going through the motions and just giving like the bare minimum. But um, here at the healthcare system, we really could be improving on health outcomes, patients experience. And like you said, starts with leadership, um, how your doctor, if your doctor, like you said, is passive, then the nurses are like, oh, this is not a big deal. It's whatever. But and then that gets passed on to the patients. And if, you don't speak up you know so many things can go under the rug or then even if you do speak up sometimes they can take it out against you and it's just very frustrating like covid-19 brought up so many issues with our healthcare system and how we're not prepared but instead of doing anything about it we're like oh we just want to get back to the way things are but the way we are currently doing things is not beneficial to patients, it's not beneficial to healthcare workers. So I appreciate you coming on and talking about your experience and also your journey and being inspired to address these gaps and from your experience, figuring out how how you can help other people so they don't have to go through the same thing. And just upholding your state to higher
1: standards. Absolutely. You know, sometimes you have to put you have to put your money where your mouth is. And like I said before, if if I become someone who is not looked at in the most positive light, oh, you know, she's bringing negative attention, that is not at all the purpose. The purpose is to actually realize and accept what our issues are and devise plans to attack those issues bit by bit. I've said it before, you cannot eat an elephant all at once. We are not at all going to change the trajectory of the Mississippi healthcare system. We're not going to change it overnight. It didn't get like this overnight. But there are steps that we can take. There are partnerships that we can make. There are realizations that we can actually accept and we can make that change. If we are willing to actually commit to it, so you know it's whoever I have to talk to. I have to start small. You know we're in the we're in the grassroots portion of getting this thing off of the ground. However, um, my main goal is to offer the services and the support to our population here in Mississippi at no cost. Cost is a big thing. a big reason why so many people won't even go and get themselves seen about um, until it's too late. You mentioned in the beginning that timeliness ultimately will make a difference. A lot of our African-American women who are affected by breast cancer sometimes don't find out until it's too late because we were either too busy or uninsured, underinsured, the thought of getting that medical bill in the mail is enough to scare probably half of our women away from even getting themselves checked out. So is we have to make these things more accessible and find ways. There are ways to get these things funded if we actually will do the research. So that's where we are right now with the Patient Nurse Foundation is just trying to find the funding. We will offer our services at no cost to those who need it. But of course, to be able to do that, those things cost money. So we're in that portion of trying to find the funding, the grant opportunities, partnerships, sponsorships with um, even our local hospitals that have like the mobile mammogram trucks, setting up some events where if there's somebody who's been putting off a mammogram or didn't have time, or they can come and take advantage of that type of resource. And then should they need further services to find out that they're diagnosed with something, they have a place to turn to. Because really what it comes down to with a lot, of doc- a lot of doctor's offices, they may have the best intent in the world, but it really comes down to time. So the patient and patient nurse foundation doesn't just speak of a person who's seeking healthcare, it comes down to time. The Patient Nurse Foundation takes the time that a patient needs to understand what they have going on and navigate it appropriately, find those things that they need. So we're just looking to be a support to our healthcare providers here in the state, Um, not trying to work against anyone, any particular population. We're just trying to be that piece, that support piece where you can send your patients. Yes, we're short-staffed, but we can't use that as an excuse to not give patients what they need. But here's a resource. You can go here. They can help you. They can help you find those things that you need. So that's really what we're looking to do.
0: What I like about the Patient Nurse Foundation and what you're doing, like you said, it comes down to time. At the doctor's office, they only have time to um, treat your chronic condition or treat your cancer. But They're not going to take the time to look at some of those social economic barriers and things that you get that you have going on. How are you going to how are you going to pay to get your appointment? Who's going to watch your kids, the family support and different things that you need? Your insurance, like with the whole new Medicaid and reinstating your insurance, like taking time and also sometimes just taking the time to listen to patients. A lot of times Patients just want to be heard. They want to be seen and just recognizing what they're going through. And it's sad, you know, where healthcare has come, where um, doctors and their patients, they just don't have enough time.
1: They absolutely don't. And the, the doctors will bill for, you know, a 15 minute visit with the patient when they were in there for three to five minutes. But the doctor's going to make sure that they get paid. Um, However they get paid, be it Medicare, be it private insurance, they're going to make sure that they're taken care of. So why not have that same mindset for the person seeking your care? It's like it's the oath that you take as a healthcare professional to see about those who are seeking your services. And so we've kind of gotten into this hands off approach, rush, 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 and we're losing people at a rapid rate and that's just not okay. It's it's not okay.
2: If you are enjoying this episode, you should consider buying us a coffee. Yes, a coffee. That small gesture will help us continue to create quality episodes and content. Click the buy me a coffee link in the show notes or check out our website at distrustanddisparities.com.
0: Tell us more about the Patient Nurse Foundation. I know you're in the grassroots stage, but um, tell us about your mission and your goal.
1: Well, our mission ultimately is to empower the people of Mississippi. Now, of course, you know, we want to have this large scale. We'd love to help everyone across the nation, but we see where we are here. So you have to have that starting point. Mm So we want to empower the patients of Mississippi, but ultimately we want to provide equity in healthcare for everyone here. Black, white, blue, purple. And we don't want it to be based on how much money do you have, how much education do you have. None of that should matter. We want our patients to be able to manage their cancer or their chronic condition from a whole person, whole patient. Standpoint, not just, okay, well, you you have cancer, we're just going to deal with the cancer. Like you just pointed out, like the socioeconomic piece, you have to be able to dig deep and figure out what type of barriers patients have to these diseases and disorders. Those are the things that are going to make the difference. So we are dedicated to digging deep, working with the whole person, the whole patient to try to navigate these complexities and get Mississippi from being dead last in the majority of our health indicators across the country. We're just trying to drive the change, change the mindset.
0: I love your mission and what you're doing. Can you tell our audience how we can su- where we can find more information about the Patient Nurse Foundation, and also how we can support your goal and mission?
1: As it stands right now, all of our social media handles are more or less under construction. Um, we want to make sure that when we get those things out there, that they contain the appropriate information to inform and let people know where to go and who to contact to be of support, to find that peace that you may be looking for. But right now, anyone who is either seeking resources, education, or just wants to get in touch to find out how they can help the mission of the Patient Nurse Foundation, I can be reached at jsamuel@patientnursefoundation.com. at So, J Samuel, no S on the end of Samuel, that's a common a misconception. So, J-S-A-M-U-E-L at patientnursefoundation.com. Um, and any questions, concerns, um, any wants to sponsor or support, provide resources can be sent there. And I can get back to you typically within 24 to 48 hours to figure out how we can team up, um, where there is a need, um, and just we're, we're going from there. We're starting with just an email um, as phone contact is 662-889-7258. And then all of those social media handles and the link for our website, we're looking to get that up within the next seven to 14 days. So it is under construction. However, um, we want to make sure that we have all of those pieces in place, not perfection, but at least enough information so that People can take advantage of those services that we offer or look to sponsor our mission or just figure out how you can jump on board and help out. I mean, I'm just one nurse, but think about what a force of nurses could do. So, you know, in your free time, if you are a nurse anywhere in the country, but especially our Mississippi nurses, if you're if you would like to help. Shoot me an email and we can figure out ways to partner, get some community events going, go out into some of these um, health fairs and things that are taking place and just figure out how we can help out on this mission for a better Mississippi.
0: What you're doing is needed and we need more programs and more nurses out there, you know, trying to challenge the status quo. So we're so excited to have you on our show to share your story and just also to share what you're doing. I'm very excited. And just to close out the interview, we're just going to ask you some quick questions. Can you tell our audience where you are in your treatment journey?
1: I have completed um, 16 rounds of chemotherapy. I had a double mastectomy and I am currently in what is deemed the reconstructive phase. So we are basically rebuilding my body. I chose from my body. Um, so I'm using my own body parts to to reconstruct. So we're just basically, I call myself a walking jigsaw puzzle. So we're rearranging <laughs> re- some things. Um, to try to make me back whole. Chemotherapy is over. Immunotherapy is over. But we're currently in the reconstructive phase. We have another surgery coming up in November. But I'm on the back end of things. But it is still all fresh in my mind with the chemotherapy and the effects. But I just want to make sure that anyone going through it, who is in the thick of it, be encouraged. Um, Sometimes it's hard to hear that, Oh, you're so strong, or you got this. Sometimes those things can be more frustrating to hear because you feel like the person that is saying it doesn't understand. But coming from a person who's been through it, who's currently still in it, just be encouraged. Be encouraged in your positive moments and in your weak moments. Go through that as well because all of that is what will make you come out victorious in the end. Process it all. Accept it all. Write, journal, color, anything that helps your mind through it. Just don't stay in those dark spaces. Sometimes we have to go into those dark spaces to be able to gradually pace our way through it. But don't stay there. Be encouraged and more positive days will come. And before you know it, it'll be way more positive days than those bad days.
0: I think we'll end it on that note because that is excellent. And all of us can take that advice. And Jasmine, we're so happy to have you on the podcast. Um, we want, Like you said, we want to uplift your mission. And if there's anything we can do to help promote the Patient Nurse Foundation, let us know. And thank you for coming on as our guest.
1: Thank you, ladies.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss or share your own personal story, email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at distrustanddisparities and on Twitter at distrustpod.